Good morning and welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study class. As you can see, we are still, because of the COVID restrictions, not meeting together this weekend. And we continue to pray for the uh, resolution of the pandemic, the health of all of you, and uh, soon looking forward to getting back uh, together where we can meet again. And I can tell you, all of us here on our team are healthy and doing well, and we are uh, missing meeting in person with each one of you. And we hope you all are doing well, too. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are our, our creator, our God, our, our savior. We ask that you will send your spirit to enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, be with our uh, friends and family all over the world that are um, part of your team and your heavenly family, and, and let us not only grow in uh, your righteousness, but also that we might be able to be effective witnesses this time in history. We'll use the events that are transpiring now to turn hearts and minds to the big eternal questions and give us the ability to share the uh, answers that you have. We pray in your holy name. Amen. One announcement today, and that is for our um, friends down in South Africa, the Journal of the Watcher and the Heavenly Sanctuary and Investigative Judgment for the Modern World is now available in South Africa. If you contact our South African uh, uh, outreach desk, which I believe is coming to reason um, South Africa, but you can uh, get a link from our website if you don't know it, and then those uh, resources can be made available. So... Uh, at least after the lockdown in South Africa is over, which we are told might be another a couple of weeks. So they'll be, they're available as soon as the lockdown's over. We're doing lesson number four in the uh, study guide, How to Interpret Scripture. And the title of the lesson is The Bible, the Authoritative Source of Our Theology. The memory text is from Isaiah 8.20, which reads, To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. I think it's a famous Bible verse that we've all known. But what does it mean? Well, I think simply the general meaning is that that the truth about God will harmonize with Scripture, with what's revealed in, in, in the Torah and the testimony of the prophets. There won't be contradiction to God's truth and what he's revealed in his word. And if people are teaching things that contradict Scripture, then they're not actually teaching truth, so they're not teaching light. They don't, they're not a source of enlightenment for us. But the lesson correctly points out that every Christian group claims that their teachings are based on Scripture, Yet within Christianity, there are multiple contradictory teachings. And so they point out that this is because a variety of different standards are applied to how people interpret Scripture. And I want to do a quick overview of what we believe is the healthiest approach to understanding Scripture, and that is the integrative evidence-based approach where... The scripture, because we value scripture, it teaches that God reveals himself and his truths through his first book, which is nature. Psalms 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Or, as you know, Romans 1.20, Paul says that God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So if we value scripture then we have to include that God reveals himself outside of Scripture, and in fact, his first revelation was not the written word, it was the created word. His first book is the book of nature. If we value Scripture, the Scripture also tells us his second book is life experiences. Psalms 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. And Jesus demonstrated when Thomas had a crisis of faith, he asked Thomas to stop doubting and believe based on his experience of touching Jesus' wounds. And so there is the second book of life experiences, which predates the writing of the Scripture. And then, of course, the third book, which is the Scripture, and we want to include all three together, searching for the truths that are consistent with Scripture, life experiences, and God's designs as revealed in nature and science. And the reason for this is, that when we harmonize them, we are able to find truths that are applicable to how the world really works and operates. When we separate the three threads, problems happen. Science all by itself, risks going down trails of godlessness. Experience all by itself, risks going down mystical pathways. But scripture, all by itself, is why we have over 40,000 
Christian groups all arguing amongst themselves that the Bible teaches this or the Bible teaches that. When we don't anchor our interpretations of Scripture in reality, in the laws that God built reality to operate upon, which are found in science, nature, and how life works, our experiences, then we can form all kinds of irrational and contradictory beliefs. If we want to interpret Scripture correctly, we have to integrate them. One of the reasons this is uh, the integrative approach is so important is because when we seek to harmonize Scripture with science and nature, it leads away from imperialistic, rule-making approaches. When we harmonize Scripture with science and nature, it leads back to the laws of nature, which lead back to the designer or creator of nature, which leads us to leave level four childish, immature thinking that the Bible talks about in Hebrews chapter 5, and we move on to maturity, understanding how reality actually works. When we separate Scripture from science and nature and the laws of God that he built into reality, then we end up stuck in penal legal theologies that are not based in reality, nor, the consi- nor are consistent with the creator God, but are based on human law models. And thus we take God off of his throne, stop worshiping him as the creator, and we begin worshiping an imperial dictator that functions like Caesar. So this is another important reason why we want to integrate scripture with science and nature so that we can mature into the full maturity that God has for us. And if we were to do this, then many of the contradictions and things that cause division in Christianity would evaporate and we'd find harmony when we integrate them together. Consider, for instance, the ordinance of foot washing, which some Christian groups do and other Christian groups don't do. If one uses scripture alone and, and they don't seek to harmonize with science and nature, they might interpret Jesus' words in John 13 as a rule as a requirement for salvation even. This is John thirteen thirteen through 17. You call me teacher and Lord, and it is right that you do so, because that is what I am. I, your Lord and teacher, have just washed your feet. You then should wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you, so that you will do just what I have done for you. I am telling you the truth. Slaves are never greater than their master, and messengers are never greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know this truth, how happy you will be if you put it into practice. Some read this and hear it as a directive, an instruction, a task, a rule, a command. Others do not. And thus we have a split in Christianity. As some take this as it reads, a rule that we're now required and obliged to um, participate in, and others do not see it as something we're obliged to do. How does the integrated evidence-based approach help us with something like this? Well, let's consider life experiences and the reality upon which Jesus was living and operating upon. In Christ's day, how did he and his disciples travel? By walking. What were the roads and pathways upon which they walked often made out of? Dirt. And were animals traveling those roads, donkeys, horses, camels, sheep, goats, and other animals traveling these roads? And did the animals leave their waste in the roads? Would this be picked up by the feet? What footwear did they have in Jesus' day? Primarily sandals. What would happen to their feet just traveling from place to place? They become terribly dirty. Was foot washing, was washing of the feet primarily a religious ritual that didn't exist in their society and Jesus just decided to institute this? Or was it an actual need that was done when people came to your home? A real service that provided not only hygiene but refreshing. In the Middle East culture, what is the, what is the foot associated with? It's associated with dirt, lowliness, worthlessness. Something trampled under the feet is worthless. Thus, we are even told, Paul talks about how we will walk or or trample upon Satan. We will defeat him and he will be beneath our feet. Thus, those who wash the feet are not the kings, but the servants. So what Jesus is teaching and revealing by his actions are servant leadership. 
that love serves, love gives, love humbles themselves. This is the type of leadership that his kingdom works upon, the, the ministry of love. It ministers to others, uses energies to uplift and build up other people. This is real-world interventions and activities that uh, needed to be done in reality. Where does science come into play? First, first point is cleanliness. There's scientific evidence that cleanliness... Uh, reduces illness and would reduce disease promotion by not tracking in the various things that are kept out on the street and the animal waste and so forth. Second, there's brain science that tells us when we act altruistically, when we give of ourselves to help another person in love, that we activate brain circuits that that are designed for empathy and compassion. We send calming signals to our fear circuit. This reduces stress cascades in the body. We have better mental health. We have better physical health. So science tells us that the acts of service for other people in love are not only healthy for them and for the community by reducing infections and disease, but it's also healthy for the person who serves another. What does life experience tell us? Does experience tell you that when you're clean, you're healthier? And that when you're healthier, you're happier. Does experience tell you uh, that when you volunteer, that you are have more joy and happiness in life? And epidemiologic studies show that older folks, older citizens who volunteer in their community have better health. They live longer. They stay out of nursing homes longer. They have less depression. They have less dementia than adults who don't volunteer. So the experiences of life confirm also that giving to others is beneficial. So how do we put all this together in application that would bring harmony to Christianity, not to vision? We realize that Jesus was not merely setting a rule, um, but demonstrating to them how to humble themselves in loving service to each other. The law of love put into action in real-world application. Thus, today, a person who follows Jesus' example might volunteer at their church to clean the bathrooms. Volunteer to clean the home of an elderly church member or a neighbor. Volunteer in this COVID-19 environment to do the grocery shopping for elderly neighbors. In other words, the acts of real-world service to others would be fulfilling Jesus' instructions. Does that mean that to have a religious foot-washing service is wrong? Not at all. It only means that it is not a legal requirement for salvation. It could be a blessing. It could be a tool the Lord has provided us with that can help remind us of the need for humble service to others, remind us of a need to humble our hearts. Or it could be used by some, no different than the publican's prayer and offering, thank you that I'm not like these other people. It could be used as a point of pride. We wash our feet at our church. You poor sinner Christians don't. So the service in and of itself doesn't have some magical quality to it, but it could be used as a therapeutic tool to help remind us of our need to humble ourselves. One of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church wrote in the book Desire of Ages the following. Now, having washed the disciples' feet, he said, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. In these words, Christ was not merely enjoining the practice of hospitality, more was meant than the washing of the feet of guests to remove the dust of travel. Christ was here instituting a religious service. By the act of our Lord, this humiliating ceremony was made a consecrated ordinance. It was to be observed by the disciples that they might ever keep in mind his lessons of humility and service. This ordinance is Christ's appointed preparation for the sacramental service. While pride, variance, and strife for supremacy are cherished, the heart cannot enter into fellowship with Christ. We are not prepared to receive the communion of his body and his blood. Therefore, it was Jesus appoint, appointed it was that Jesus appointed the memorial of his humiliation to be first observed. This author is telling us that this is a tool and it has no magical benefits. It's not a rule that we're required to do. It is an agency provided to benefit us in the reality that is required, a change of heart.
that pride and variance and strife need to be put aside and our hearts need to be renewed in humility and love for God and for each other. That's the reality that's required because what does that actually mean? We are being healed, transformed, renewed. The actual service itself is simply a tool to lead us to heart transformation. When we understand that reality, then we can find unity and we can celebrate the person who finds benefit and those who want to participate in the service as it humbles them, but we don't ostracize and reject people who haven't found benefit in that. Do you see how the integrative approach brings harmony and understanding because it leads us back to the applicable reality of the true plan of salvation, which is heart change, not ceremonial performances. And through the design, we can see all those who have humble hearts help others are fulfilling Christ's instructions and we don't split over differences in rituals. I wonder how many Western Christians who value the foot-washing service, the ordinance, the ritual, how many value it and practice it in their church on a regular basis would be eager to go to a culture where people went barefoot or wore sandals and had dirt roads and would be willing to be a greeter at the door and wash all the dirty feet coming in. The lesson suggests that the problem in misunderstanding Scripture is that in various groups, scriptural interpretation is impacted by tradition, or experience, or culture, or reason. And they're suggesting that really the Bible should be left to its own and not these other influences impacting our understanding of of the Bible. We will unpack these four as we go through the rest of the week. Just to point out historically, the Anglican Church has historically used the Anglican triad, which was the combination of scripture, reason, and tradition harmonized together. Some would say tradition merely means the experiences of the Christian journey. The Wes- John Wesley developed what he called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which harmonizes scripture with tradition, experience, and reason. The lesson takes the point that the scripture should not be uh, impacted directly by these other elements. We'll unpack and see if that is actually a scriptural principle. Sunday's lesson, the lesson points out the, uh, the problem of allowing tradition to negate, supersede, contradict, or lead away from the truth as taught in scripture. Let's affirm that. Tradition should not negate supersede, contradict, or lead us away from truth taught in Scripture. It gives the example of Korban, which was practiced by the Pharisees in Christ's day, in which a person could uh, label their assets as dedicated to the temple, and therefore those assets were no longer available to be used to support their own parents uh, and were retained for one's own self until their death, and anything that they didn't use in life would then go to the temple. And so Jesus said they negate the word of God to honor your mother and father for their own traditions. And he calls this hypocrisy. Was Jesus exposing the problem of tradition? Or was he exposing the problem of selfishness operating in the heart rather than love? The practice of Korban was a practice that legalized selfishness and allowed a person to be selfish while believing they are being pious and dedicated to the church as they dedicate their resources at death to the church. This led to a great, greater sense of spiritual pride as they were devout and they dedicated their resources to the church. In reality, they were able to keep it all for themselves as long as they were alive. And, so, and thus selfishness has no part in the kingdom of God in God's kingdom of love. And so Jesus exposes this hypocrisy, claiming to represent God's kingdom while actually promoting the kingdom of selfishness. Some may misunderstand what Jesus was saying and and think and, and see this through the human legal law lens and say, no, the real problem was God gave them a rule to honor their mother and father, and they set aside God's rule for their own rule. It had nothing to do with selfishness. It had to do with the wrong rule-keeping, and, and once they were no longer keeping God's rule, they're in legal trouble with God and need to be punished that would be a level four or lower understanding, seeing the scripture through the lens of human law. I just wanted to share this passage, Mark 7, 6 through 13, 
through the design law view as rendered in the remedy. Jesus didn't hesitate in his reply. Isaiah got it right when he described charlatans like you, those who pretend to partake of the remedy but instead promote spiritual poison. Just as he wrote, these people proclaim their love for me with their mouths, but their hearts are as far away from love for me and my methods as they can get. They, their worship is useless and their teachings are nothing but man-made rules. You have thrown away God's healing prescription and are promoting a counterfeit cocktail of do's and don'ts thought up by men. You have perfected the art of throwing away God's healing prescription and replacing it with your own worthless traditions. For Moses taught God's remedy, love your father and your mother, and anyone who fails to love their father and mother will certainly die. But you come along with your own rules, which are the poison of selfishness. Throw out God's prescription of love when you say that if a person says to their father or mother, whatever I might otherwise give to you is now Corban, that is, the resources are designated for the temple, then you excuse their responsibility to love and provide for their parents. This is just one example of how you make God's healing remedy useless by place, replacing it with your worthless traditions handed down through the generations. You do many things just like that. God's plan is always about healing, restoring, regenerating, recreating us in heart and mind to operate in harmony with God's law of love. It's very practical and has practical application in our lives today. That's what the integrative evidence-based approach does so well. It helps us realize that Bible truths are, are applicable in how we live and how life experiences work. But when we divorce the Bible from science, nature, and life experiences, then we create superstitions and confusing ritualistic practices. One tradition that has crept into the church and Protestant churches and also the Seventh-day Adventist church that we must reject is the tradition that Scripture must be used alone, divorced from science and experience. That's tradition. We must integrate Scripture with God's other evidentiary threads if we want God's truth. Let's examine some other Christian traditions. We will find that some of these I'm going to list to you now are harmonized with the Bible. They're in the Bible. Others contradict the Bible, and others are neither in the Bible or contradict the Bible. And I want you to consider, regardless of whether it's in the Bible, not in the Bible, or contradicts the Bible, do any of these traditions actually have salvation significance? Does it make a difference to one's salvation which way they hold on these? Whether a person saved or lost. So let's look at some of these. Traditions. Using musical instruments or not in worship in, worship in church, in the worship service. That's tradition. Baptism by immersion or sprinkling. Attending church on Sabbath or Sunday or Wednesday evening. Elevating the priest or pastor on a platform above the con congregation. You understand the New Testament, that's not how the church is met. Having sermons in which the audience does not participate. Having special music as part of the worship service. Having a church building owned by a denomination. That's tradition. It's not in the Bible. Having denominations. Ordaining pastors or priests as a separate spiritual class from the church member. Having ordination of men and not women, or ordaining both. Celibacy of the priesthood, or married pastors and married priests. Children's story during the worship service. Passing a collection plate for tithes and offerings during the worship service. All of these things I've listed are traditions. How many denominational divisions do we have because of one or more of these traditions? How many of these are actually essential to salvation? If you don't do one of these in a precise way, you can't be saved. If any of these are not essential to salvation, why have we been divided because of them.
I will tell you why. Because of imperial law think. Because of approaching the Bible through a human law model that the rules actually matter. And if you don't get the right rules, then you will be breaking the right rules because you don't know the right rules. So you're breaking the rules and rule breaking is the problem and you're in legal trouble. And so we have to have the right rules and those rules, not, not even just behavior, we have to have the right beliefs. And if we don't believe it in the right way, then we're in trouble. So we have to have the right doctrines rather than the right heart. And this leads to division, argument, conflict, rather than loving each other as Christ loved us. If something isn't out of harmony with God's design law, if it's not out of harmony with God's design law, why do we need to divide over it? For instance, in the healthcare field, operating upon the laws of health, If some people insist that in order to be healthy, you must wear a red sweater to church each week. Do do we care? Or would we let them? That's fine. We present the truth that we find no evidence or benefit in wearing red sweaters. But we find no harm in wearing red sweaters. And so we would just simply ignore them and let them wear red sweaters. Or would we make insist that if you wear wear, wear, wear red sweaters, you can't fellowship with us or is this one of those places of romans 14 he who has great faith doesn't need to wear a red sweater but he who has little faith needs to wear a red sweater but if they insist instead of red sweaters that health is promoted by smoking cigarettes and they try to teach other people and get other people to start smoking cigarettes In that case, they're now out of harmony with God's design laws, the laws of health. We would oppose them with the evidence, the facts, the truth. We would still leave them individually free to smoke if they so choose, but we would not allow them to promote smoking in our fellowship because it's destructive to other people. This is where the division lines need to be drawn on the laws of God that actually make a difference in the healing of the hearts and minds of people. In Christianity today, many people end up divided and arguing over things that really don't matter. Monday's lesson, the lesson is about experience. And I really like how the lesson focuses on our need for a personal experience with God, that we need to personally experience his goodness in our own lives, in our own hearts. And this is exactly correct. That's the key, having a personal experience with God. They also point out that experience needs to harmonize with Scripture and um, do we have a question? Yeah. Um, I, I have someone asking, like you explained, Coban, explain how Sunday sac- sacredness gives the right or wrong heart. I guess the question is trying to say, is there a relationship between the day one goes to church on and whether that they have a good heart or not? Well, the, the, some people believe that the Scripture teaches that the Sabbath, and in fact the Scripture does teach, the Sabbath begins at sunset Friday and ends on sunset Saturday. Did the Jewish people who crucified Christ have the wrong day of the week? No, they wanted him off the cross so they could keep the right day of the week. Did that right day of the week, uh, because they wanted to keep it so religiously that they didn't even want him on the cross, result in their salvation? No. The right day of the week has a benefit if it's understood for its right purpose. But just having the right day of the week is not a salvation issue. You can have the right day of the week and be lost. And there will be many people in heaven who never understood the Sabbath, never worshipped on the Lord's Sabbath. And further, there's nothing in Scripture that actually says that the Sabbath is a day to go to church. If you want to use the commandment, it says that the Sabbath is a day to rest from all your labors and to not do your own work. I know of people who go to church every Sunday and observe the Sabbath by resting from their labor and going out into nature with their family, but they never go to church on Sabbath. They go to church on Sunday, but they observe the Sabbath with Sabbath rest. Some some people who are still at level four and believe it's all behavior-oriented and rule-keeping make rules for the Sabbath, and you must keep all these rules like the Pharisees did in Christ's day, and thus they have the right day, and they do all the rule-keeping on Sabbath, but they're not Sabbath-keepers any more than the persons who wanted to... to crucify Christ and stone him because he was healing on Sabbath. He was breaking their rules. So the days have importance as they're connected to the governments of which they represent. 
The Sabbath represents the government of the designer-creator God, whose laws work upon design law, and the Sunday came to be a day of Christian worship through legislation. It was voted to be such by a legislative body. Thus, it symbolizes or represents a human governmental system. So Sabbath keepers who worship the Sabbath on the seventh day of the week, Friday, Saturday to Sunday, uh, Friday night sunset to Saturday night sunset, but worship a God who operates like a Roman dictator, imperial law, source of inflicted pain and punishment, are actually not Sabbath observers because they're taking the right day and causing it to represent the wrong God. And so the question of Sabbath and Sunday is a very complex one if you understand the ideas and involved around that and we elevate ourselves above rule-keeping. So arguing about traditions are fear-based? Arguing about anything can be fear-based. I don't find a lot of help in argument. We present the truth in love. We leave people free, Romans chapter 14. And in that chapter, he talks about one day being uh, considered um, holy and others consider all days the same. Uh, it is, And he says every person should be fully persuaded in their mind. There's no, there's no arguing. You present truth in love and leave people free. And, and to the degree that it's a design law of God, as they violate it, they can't avoid the harmful consequences to their heart, minds, bodies, and relationships. To the degree that it's not a uh, design law of God, it has really no big consequence to them other than to the degree they believe a lie that causes a superstition. And then it's the believing of the lie, not the actual thing itself, and that's what Paul's dealing with in the early part of chapter 14 of Romans. So Monday's lesson, continuing on. They also point out that experience needs to be harmonized with Scripture. Again, this is exactly correct. We don't want experiences that are contradictory to truths that are, that are taught in Scripture. But it goes the other way as well. Our understanding of Scripture must be informed and, um, and balanced by real-life experiences. There is an overlap between the two. Uh, when we deny the experiences of life because we have a certain interpretation of Scripture, then we create superstitious beliefs. Consider Galileo, who observed the movements of the stars, and this was an experience that he had that, that was measurable and reproducible. So in this case, we have science and experience overlapping. He's experiencing it, and he's measuring it, and it's reproducible. And he comes to the conclusion about the movement of the planets around the sun, including the Earth moving around the sun. But that contradicted their interpretation of Scripture. And they took the position that Scripture supersedes experience in science, and therefore they imprisoned Galileo. This is wrong. I almost hear the lesson suggesting that if we have a contradiction between reason, between science, between experience and scripture, we must always go with scripture. No, we must evaluate where the truth is and always go with the truth. Our interpretation of scripture may be wrong. I will say this very clearly. Scripture is never wrong because it's a source of truth. But our interpretations and understanding of it can be very wrong, just like the example um, with Galileo. Imagine a person has a supernatural event. Their dog talks to them and claims to have a message from God. Should they just believe this supernatural experience, or should they compare whatever message they're getting with the truths revealed in Scripture? Perhaps it's a false spirit. I do recall the Scripture teaching us of a serpent speaking. Should they believe what the serpent says? What about, it's not a miracle of a talking animal, but... The dream, they have a dream or an impression they believe is from God sending them a specific message. Should they just believe the dream or the impression? Or should they compare the dream or impression with the truths revealed in Scripture? Last paragraph says, Experiences can be very deceiving. Biblically speaking, experience needs to have its proper sphere. It needs to be informed and shaped by Scripture and interpreted by Scripture. Sometimes we want to experience something that is out of harmony with God's word and will. Here we need to learn to trust the word of God even over our experience and desires. We should be on guard to make sure that even our experience is always in harmony with the word of God and does not contradict the clear teachings of the Bible. No questions that experiences can deceive and that we want our experiences to be understood to the truth of Scripture. When we talk about our experience, though, not deceiving us, would that include not being deceived by the experience of Bible study? Can people study the Bible 
in ways that they deceive themselves, that their experience of Bible study becomes deceptive. And so, how will studying the Bible resolve this if they are being deceived with their study of the Bible? Have you not ever experienced somebody that studies Scripture and they come to deceptive and false conclusions and they're claiming it from the Scripture? How can you help show them the truth if they're convinced that the Scripture has taught them this? And this is the problem you get into when you divorce the Scripture from science and life's other experiences because those confusing conclusions can be refuted when you require the Scriptures to harmonize with God's design laws on how life is built. Is there a difference between experiences and experience? Do you want an experienced surgeon, pilot, lifeguard, or do you want a professor who has studied the academics of these subjects and has a PhD in their theory, but has never actually practiced medicine, flown an airplane, or gone swimming? Would you, who would you want in your life if you had a need. What about with our church leaders? Is it sufficient to have people with doctoral degrees in theology? Is requiring academic degrees the same thing as being experienced in the things of God? What would give one such genuine experience in the things of God? Wouldn't it be the actual application in real-life experience of God's truth, both in their own lives and in the lives of others? This is what I learned when I was in my residency, that Bible truths have to have real-world application. I wrote about this in the preface to Could It Be This Simple? If Bible truths don't have real-world application, or if the things we're learning out of the Bible don't actually apply to our lives, then they're probably not Bible truths. Theoretical ideas are worthless in God's kingdom if they don't actually have real-world application in our lives. This is a problem with much of Christianity. The doctrines in much of Christianity are theoretical, conceptual, otherworldly, but they don't apply to how this world operates today. There's something wrong with those beliefs. Consider our experience with God, our experience with God. Jesus said in John 17, 3, Now, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Is this knowing about God? Or knowing God? Can we study here on earth today the biographies of famous people and learn all about them? We can become experts on the facts of their lives. Does that mean we actually know them? Sadly, this is what happens many times in theological circles. Theologians can study their entire life and become experts on the facts and still not know God. This is exactly what the experts on the Bible in Christ's day were accused of by Jesus himself. In fact, demonstrated they were the experts in the Bible. The Pharisees and the Sadducees studied their whole life. And when God stood among them, they did not recognize him. They didn't know him. They hated him. They rejected him and crucified him. How many church leaders today would find themselves in that camp? Jesus said it will be this way at the end of time. Remember, Jesus prophesied that at the end of time they will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We perform miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. Notice, they are doing this in the name of Jesus. These are not Buddhists. These are Christians. Jesus said, get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. They know about Jesus. They don't know him. It's a scary thing. And this is what happens at level four thinking. At level four thinking, it's about knowing facts, knowing ideas, knowing constructs, but not knowing God. Level five, love for God and other people. Level six, understanding God's designs. Level seven, understanding God's purposes. This takes us into intimacy with God. We actually have to know him. This is growing up and becoming mature Christians in the image of Christ. Tuesday's lesson, 
The lesson focuses on culture and its impact on understanding of Scripture. It points out that the Scripture was written by people in a particular culture to people in a particular culture. Does that mean, is it suggesting there are aspects of Scripture that takes God's eternal truths and presents them with a cultural lens? Does that mean that for us today, we can rightly remove some of the cultural elements as long as we retain the eternal truths? Can you think of some examples of how God's eternal truths were presented through a cultural lens? What about patriarchal dominance? A world in which, in other words, a world in which males dominate females, men dominate women. Has God's truth and design for human relationships been slanted through a culture in which men were viewed as having authority over women merely because of their gender, regardless of their character? Has this carried through human history so that in Christianity today, men are often viewed as spiritually superior to women based solely on their gender without regard to their character? In other words, would many accept a selfish and prideful male pastor over a Christ-like female pastor? What was God's original design for human beings? Did God create Adam and Eve with one of them in Eden to be subordinate to the other? Or did God create Eve from Adam's side? Not from his foot to be ruled over, not from his head to rule over him, but from his side to be his equal companion. Equal in moral worth. Equal in value. Equal in how God's law treats them both. But one of the truths often missed when people look at the equality of God's design, the equality of moral worth, the equality of how God's laws teach, uh, treat them, the equality of God's value and love for them, they miss that God purposely built them, designed them, constructed them with inequalities in function. So that when they join in the God's design, other-centered union of love, the two together complement each other in a way that elevate them both to be able to experience, be, and achieve more than either one can achieve singly and alone. It was part of God's design that we have differences in abilities while we have equality in value and worth. Satan wants to corrupt God's design so Satan doesn't want equality between the sexes. Satan wants domination, subordination, exploitation. Satan also wants falsehoods like men and women being morally equal, being translated into the lie that we are equal in all abilities. That's not true. We're not equal in all abilities. For instance, women can get pregnant. Men cannot. We have different abilities. Because uh, because this is inherently false, that we have different strengths that complement each other, when we promote the idea that we're equal in all ways, it creates an inherent inconsistency that continues to perpetuate conflict between the sexes. When we accept truths that we are morally equal and we have uh, value in, 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 as equality, we don't dominate or control either, either party, but we value the differences that we both bring, then we can have loving unity where we promote those differences and the elevation of each party. There is never a desire to obstruct, to denigrate, to hold down the other, but always to advance and build up and elevate the other. We cherish and promote this development in each other because we are all blessed by it. Within the church, as we come back to God's design, greater and greater equality in how we treat others is practiced and experienced as we allow the Holy Spirit to gift people with the gifts of the Spirit. We recognize those gifts gifts and allow those people blessed by God to enter into the positions that God has called them to enter. Third paragraph says, culture, like any other facet of God's creation, is affected by sin. Consequently, consequently, it also stands under the judgment of God. Yes, some aspects of our culture might align very nicely with our faith, 
but we must also be careful to distinguish between the two. Ideally, biblical faith should challenge, if need be, the existing culture and create a counterculture that is faithful to God's word. When you hear judgment in this context, do you hear a judicial ruling? Or do you hear judgment as in discernment, as in diagnosis, as in differentiating that which is actually healthy and reasonable and right from that which is harmful and destructive and wrong? Is that how you hear it? Well, that's how I hear it. Yes, God accurately diagnoses all things, those things that are in harmony with this design, which should be healthy, and those things that are not. We, While we are not to judge the motives or the secret hearts, uh, character of another person, we are to make judgments about what's actually healthy. That's absolutely what God has called us to do, to assess reality and judge. Is this in harmony with God's design? Is this healthy or is this harmful? Are there cultural pressures which introduce false ideas not only into the world but into the church, which oppose God's healing? and his restoration. Well, the biggest one, we're not going to spend time on right now, but I'll just say it, is the imperial law lie. That's the biggest cultural pressure, that God operates his government like human governments operate. Uh, operate. And that is the biggest infection to Christianity of all, but we spend so much time. Let's do some other ones. How about if we had access today to the tree of life, and we had some of the fruit from the tree of life, and anybody who took a bite out of the fruit of the tree of life would instantly be cured of any malady. For instance, if somebody was blind and they took a bite, they would, they would be able to see. Would this be a godly thing to do for them? How about if a person was deaf and, and, we could, and they took a bite and, and their hearing, hearing was restored? How about if we could do this to all the deaf people on the whole planet and, and just wipe and eradicate deafness out of the planet? Would this be a godly thing to do? Do you understand if we did that, we would destroy a culture? The deaf have their own language. They have their own culture. In fact, as solutions have come forward to cure deafness with various implants of various kinds, some of the deaf community have come out in protestation of those cures because they recognize if deafness is cured, the deaf community, that culture will be destroyed. Is it godly to cure deafness? Or should we leave the condition if we, if we had the ability to cure it? What about, now, is, is deafness, is being deaf sin? No, being deaf is not sin. It's simply a condition that has occurred because of sin in the world. That's all. What about if we had the ability to give people with autism fruit from the tree of life, and it cured their autism, and it was evaporated and gone? Would that be a godly thing to do? What about if we gave people the fruit, if we gave it to people who had other than heterosexual sexual identity, and it restored them to heterosexual identity? Would that be a godly thing to do? If we had such a fruit that could actually do all of these things, would it be met with joy and appreciation or hostility and rage? And if anybody would be upset that we had a fruit that could do these things, what would that reveal? Wendell was asking, how do we know the difference? Differences are inherent in gender, and what is inherent as a result of sin? We're back in the gender question. I think it's a very straightforward question. Anything that is not heterosexual, as God designed in Eden, is, uh, and it is out of harmony with God's design. It will be eliminated when God cures. That doesn't mean it's necessarily sin, any more than blindness or deafness or autism or sin. They're not sin. There are conditions that have resulted because of sin. And there are many intersex conditions, uh, and I list a whole host of them in my, in my book, um, The God-Shaped Heart, that have occurred because of sin, but they aren't sin. So we don't condemn anybody because of these conditions. I don't condemn anybody with these conditions, whether it's autism, blindness, deafness, or other than heterosexual identity. But I recognize that is not how God designed things to be, and I expect when he heals his creation, all variances from his original design that have crept in because of nature groaning under the weight of it will be eliminated. Okay, and Loxley asks, so the Bible is only final when it's combined with experience and, and reason for truth? Only final. Uh, to the degree that uh, in, there are multiple truths that we don't have evidentiary threads on all three elements. 
Uh, you won't have evidentiary threads uh, on the Bible, for instance, on the on the um, the size of the moon. It's not going to be listed. You can't measure the size of the moon from the Bible. Okay, so there are truths in our reality and life experiences that are not in Scripture. To the degree that there are all three, though, we come to the accurate understanding when we all three are harmonized and come to the same conclusion. If you do have truth revealed in science and nature, in our experiences in life and in Scripture, and they contradict each other in our understanding, we know that somewhere our understanding is wrong. Rightly understood, they will always harmonize. Okay, and so we should conclude that the Bible it, by itself is not the final authority without being con- combined with the experience and reason. Yeah, I would, I would conclude the Bible by itself is not the final authority on things, and those who would say the Bible is have a very narrow view of reality, in fact, deny the Bible, because Paul in Romans 1 and other places, and Christ in his own practices, taught many truths that he did not teach from quoting Scripture. You won't find Christ teaching the people by a biblical exegesis. He taught them godly truths by teaching them parables about how the world around them worked. Now, we can use those parables because... because Christ used them, and those examples that Christ used are found in Scripture, so people could say, but they're in Scripture now, but that wasn't the method Christ used, and so we can find additional other examples of godly truths not recorded in Scripture that are just as truthful as the ones found in Scripture. So Wednesday's lesson suggests that um, using reason to determine truth leads to rationalism rationalism, and the rejection of Scripture, and that... Um, And they make a point that I think I want to highlight because I think there's truth in this. In fact, it is true. Our human reason, divorced from God's enlightenment, divorced from that Holy Spirit, divorced from the truth revealed in Scripture, our human reason alone cannot discover truth. God has to reveal truth to us. However, once God reveals truth to us, God expects us to exercise the abilities he's given us to reason them out and differentiate between truth and lies. Now, this is critically important. There's a big difference between believing something because the teacher said so and believing something because it's been re- it's been demonstrated to you, you've thought it through, and come to your own conclusion that, in fact, what the teacher said is right. Some people can memorize answers to questions, and they know the answer, but they have no idea why it's the answer. God doesn't want us to know truth simply because the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it, we've memorized the answer, we have no idea why it's true. God reveals the truth to us, but then he wants us to reason, to think, to weigh evidences, to exercise those capacities, to develop within us godly discernment so that we mature, and the mature are those who develop by practice the ability to discern the right from wrong, so we know how to take new and novel situations and apply the biblical and godly truths that we have learned from God's word into real-life situations. Because there are many situations we can be faced with that are we don't have a Bible text for. But we will always have Bible principles for if we understand how those are applied. Ten years ago, I had a series of meetings with some theologians who uh, uh, were not really happy with what we teach in Common Reason Ministries. And one of their big objections was that by our name, Come in Reason, we use reason. And they actually wrote in one of their papers to me as we were going back and forth, human reason must bow before divine revelation or we are left with rationalism. This was their fear, rationalism, that reason can never discern, reason can never be used to understand Scripture. It just must take Scripture as it reads. We can't reason through it. They argued that um, if we were to reason through Scripture, then we are putting Scripture subordinate to our own reason, and we are not allowed to do that. Of course, I pointed out to them, Isaiah one eighteen, come where the Lord says, come let us reason together that your sins are like scarlet, but white like snow. And about every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. I pointed out that uh, God is a source of all truth, and Satan has no truth on his side. And therefore, if Satan, having no truth on his side, doesn't want people reason and examining evidences and truth, because they'll discover that he's full of lies. And God, who has all truth, wants us to dig into reason and examine the evidence and truth, because all truth leads back to him. And I'm going to skip, because we're getting close on time, up into Thursday's lesson. But no, because these were SDA theologians, I did share this one passage, this one quote out of a book called Steps to Christ with them, page 105. It says, God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason. And this testimony is abundant. So yes, um, I did share that with them, but they didn't find it reasonable. I don't understand about that. 
Thursday's lesson, the lesson points out that some people allow their experience in what they believe are the movements of the Holy Spirit to diminish the role of Scripture. In other words, they get a message they believe is from the Holy Spirit, but that message is not processed through the Scripture to determine if it is in harmony with Scripture, or even worse, contradicts Scripture. And thus they allow what they believe to be the Spirit to lead them outside of or away from the Scripture. And so the lesson rightly points out that if we get some message that we believe is from a supernatural source, even the Holy Spirit, we are required, if we want to not be taken away by false spirits, to test the spirits, as the, the Bible tells us to do, to make sure it harmonizes with the truth as revealed in Scripture, because the Holy Spirit that inspired the Scripture will not lead us to um, ideas that are contradictory to the Scripture. The, the Lord is consistent with himself. Can the Bible, though, be rightly understood without the Holy Spirit? No, it cannot. We cannot understand the Bible without the Holy Spirit. Can a person experience a new heart without the Holy Spirit? No, we can't. So the Holy Spirit is integral in the whole process, bringing conviction, leading us, enlightening us. The metaphor of a lamp is a really good one. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, the, the Bible tells us. But the lamp brings no light without oil. The word of God is the lamp. The Holy Spirit is the oil. And if there's no oil to, in, to empower the word, we don't get enlightenment. The Holy Spirit enlightens our mind to it. And worse, if we're not indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we don't give light to the world around us. We don't have light in of ourselves. We only give light as the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Uh, the lesson in the last paragraph says the following. It is not our task to sit in judgment over the scripture. The word of God, rather, has the right and the authority to judge us and our thinking. Hmm. Are they saying that we are not to reason through the scripture, we're not to read it and make a judgment about it? It sounds like that's what they're saying. That we're simply, that if, we, if we find the word of God, that there's a directive from God, an instruction from God, that we are not to judge them. No, that doesn't apply to me. The Bible said it. God has given an instruction. We can't judge. That is judging us, and we are to follow that practice. That's what I'm hearing them say. Well, let's put that into practice here. Uh, I wish the authors were here, because I would read the following to them, and you can check in your Bible, but let's read the following. This is out of Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 to 27. This is from the NIV. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and and the firstborn of the herds uh, and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he has chosen as the dwelling place for his name, so that you may learn to revere and love the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant... And you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord has chosen to put his name is is so far away. Then exchange your tithe for silver. Take the silver with you and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Now, a couple of questions here. Are we to practice tithing? Are we to use our tithes to support the Levites, which would be the priests and the pastors, the church leaders? Do you think the people who wrote this would want us to apply the principles of tithing and supporting of our church leadership? I I think they probably would. Then don't you also think they would not us, they wouldn't want us to judge the scripture? This is a directive and instruction from God. I'm sure they would want us to use the tithe to buy some fermented wine and celebrate for the Lord. They wouldn't want us to judge that, would they? Of course I'm being a little facetious here because I find it offensive that they would suggest that we are not to use our judgment in understanding and reasoning through the scripture and coming to healthy and reasonable conclusions. Enlightened by the Holy Spirit, we are to weigh these things out, comparing Scripture with Scripture. And every person be fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans 14, 5. That means you have to make a judgment on what you believe to be the truth or not. 
We were created in the image of God with the ability to think and to reason, and God wants us to develop those abilities, those abilities to the highest capacity possible. And this is the law of exertion. Those abilities will never expand, never grow, never develop if we refuse to exercise them. If we go down the path of the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it, who am I to question? I can't sit in judgment. I just must believe and obey. Then you will dwarf the abilities God has given you. He is calling on us to, yes, study Scripture, Ask for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Humble ourselves before our God, but exercise your reasoning abilities. Weigh things out. Sometimes you might study a concept, an idea, a Bible verse for years or decades before you finally understand it correctly. That's what God wants us to do because it's through the exertion and the application of our abilities in a humble relationship with our Heavenly Father that he develops us and helps us mature into the stature of Jesus Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We are so thankful that you have given us the abilities to think and to reason and to weigh evidences. And we pray that your Holy Spirit, the spirit of love and truth, we pour down to our hearts and minds, enlightening us and help us draw closer to you. Give us discernment and wisdom as we weigh these things out, that we will be led in the paths everlasting to draw closer to you each and every day. And again, we pray for our friends and family around the world. We pray that you will use us in this world at this time to show your principles and methods and how we live and to use these circumstances to turn hearts and minds to the eternal realities. We pray in your holy name. Amen.